welcome to Border Polar Broadcast. Okay, so who am I and why should you care? My basic goal with this podcast is to take my understanding or theories on a variety of topics and offer them to you, dear listeners, to see if we can't get you to take a second look at reality and say, wait a minute. I personally believe only one thing with certainty, that uncertainty is the only attitude one can have towards any question or answer, but we'll get into that at a later date. Much of the inspiration of this podcast is very obvious, such as The Elder Scrolls or other podcasters, most notably Arimithius and the Fallout Lorecast. On the topic of Arimithius, he takes a very courageously deep look into the concepts of lore and real-world ideology that most people would never consider in the first place. I also draw inspiration from various philosophers, artists, and other lores. Even if the subject matter is not the shiniest, most eye-catching stuff, I want to offer a deeper look at things I consider significant, and I want to do so both within the context of the Elder Scrolls universe as well as our own, because as you will see, I do not consider a distinction between the two to be relevant or even logically justifiable. Before we get started, I just want to offer this preface. The method of the series will be to offer up different, seemingly unrelated concepts that I have studied for some time now and try to identify connections between. If you are interested but cannot understand my often verbose and profane speech, please contact me via the email address provided at the end of the episode. You can also comment and email me via Blogger. The address is theborderpolarbroadcast at blogger.com. Let's kick off with an Elder Scrolls-related question. What is Mythopaic Force? Arimithius has an excellent episode on this question, although I believe we can take this concept and apply it to our lives. If you'll indulge me for a moment, consider that men cannot interact with reality directly. That is to say that we have to use the medium of our senses to interact with and perceive reality. Even then, we have different faculties of knowledge that we can then use to come to conclusions and interpretations about the things that we perceive, such as logic, faith, or intuition, which I will definitely cover in an episode all by themselves. To anyone out there who has had similar experiences as myself, deep meditation, ritual, and hallucinogens prove that the senses are imperfect and can be deceived. I have heard it said that our expectations of this life become it. I suggest to you this. No man can directly interface with reality. His means of interacting with it are imperfect, and therefore everything a man sees and how he sees it are unique to him and should be treated with uncertainty. No two people see the same object identically. Remember that shitty dress that circulated on the internet a few years ago? Perfect example. So now that we know that the filters we interpret reality through are imperfect, I believe that we can establish that there is variance, obviously, between what one man will perceive and another. So now we know that the filters we interpret reality through are imperfect. I believe our lenses or biases that we hold have an effect on reality because they definitely have an effect on how we perceive reality and we cannot know reality except by how we perceive it. You see, it is a self-perpetuating process. By assuming control over our lenses and therefore perception, then we might also assume that by taking control of our perception, we are simultaneously taking control of the outcome of reality. The degree and extent to which the effect our lenses or filters may actually have is debatable. I do believe, however, this notion is significant enough that it merits consideration. This method we shall call mythopaic force. Others have defined this phrase differently, but I will define it as such. Mythopaic force, the alteration of a priori phenomena via narrative construction and perceptive lens correction to affect posteriori phenomena. 
A priori, for those of you who don't know, means the things which exist before the point of experiencing them. That would be something like your expectations of life, right? Posteriori means after said point of experience, which you might call the outcome. So let's break this down. First off, notice that the word phenomena is used twice. Arimetheus, again, does a great job at looking at this concept, which was explicated first by the philosopher Immanuel Kant. If you want to research this topic further, I highly suggest you listen to Arimetheus' podcast episode, What Happened to the Dwemer, or look up Transcendental Idealism by Immanuel Kant. In a nutshell, phenomena are those things which we perceive. The definitions and our understandings of those things are totally dependent on us perceiving them. That is to say that we are not seeing the real thing as it exists independent of perception, because the only way we can interact with or even acknowledge the thing is by perceiving it imperfectly, which is subject to how we perceive and interpret them. This is contrasted by noumena, which are things in themselves, which is to say what the object is independent of how we perceive it. I believe that when we recognize that there is a difference between what is allegedly actually existing and what we are perceiving, then we can effectively split reality in twain. What I mean by this is that we should conceive of reality differently. I believe that there are two perspectives from which we can analyze existence. The first is macroscopically, which might be called from the perspective of God, and microscopically, which might be taken to be from the perspective of man. For the sake of this episode and every single one which comes after it, let's define Big G God as the totality of everything. God can be summed up by the word all. Some say he could be called the I am, but the I in that definition implies that there are things beyond God, because I expresses individuality separate from other things, which I consider impossible to be the case if we are to take the definition of God as we have already laid out. I do not think of God as a person with an agenda or even an intellect. Rather, he is the sum of all existence. When we view him this way, like a symbol, it enables us to understand that we are a part of God and God is a part of us in a way. So what does God perceive? Bishop George Barclay argued that God observed everything and was therefore the guarantor of an objective reality. I am personally dubious to this assertion. How can a being without end understand anything unless he has something to contrast it to? God may as well have no means of perception, because even if he did, how could he appreciate it? Light and dark, for example, are defined by everybody except for out-of-touch fucking scientists as follows. Light is the banishing of dark. Dark is the absence of light. Therefore, God has no means. He has no thing with which to compare his observations and therefore cannot appreciate them. What does man see? Man sees everything unique to himself because he perceives things through his senses, through his lenses and filters. So what do the two things above imply? We men can control and act as guarantors of our own realities. We can shape our individual experience. If God cannot necessarily act as guarantor of an objective reality, then we could potentially suspect, although never be certain, that reality is not always consistent and therefore its inconsistencies may potentially be exploited. When I think about that last sentence, I instantly think dragon break. But that's a whole other ball of wax. So how do mythopoeic forces fit into all of this horse shit? If someone were to construct a narrative about how they came into being, which suggested that they were a god and actually believed it, it would certainly have an effect on them. This is exactly what Vivek is doing in the early chapters of the 36 lessons. 
This is an example of mythopoeic force. To put it bluntly, mythopoeic force can be used as a tool to alter reality. If we construct a narrative that represents a principle we wish to embody and then believe in it, it is just the same as what the Dwemer were trying to do with Numidium. Remember the Dwemer? What were they trying to do? They were attempting to create a new god. Why? Because the Dwemer understood, like the ancient Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans, that small g gods can be fundamentally understood to represent principles of nature, or, more simply put, principles. Remember how the Dwemer did not seem to play nice with the gods? That is because, with the potential exception of Lorcan, no god had a principle that fit in with the Dwemeri attempts to transcend and escape beyond reality. If you want proof of this, just look at Azura's selfish attempts to prevent the Dwemer from transcending, and her punishment of the Chimer for the Tribunal's baby step in that direction. Going back to principle, however, we can understand why Demnavani said that the Dwemer retreated behind math, color, and the active principle. All these things are eternal, and closer to the source of reality than any small g gods could be. It is at this point I feel I should point out that before the advent of Christianity, most polytheistic religions explicitly understood the relationship between gods and their worshippers to be a mutually beneficial one. Gods would receive worship and sacrifice, and worshippers would receive the blessing of that god. And I have observed that the blessings they would be given are almost always consistent with the principle the god represents. Here's what I mean. Pray and sacrifice to a rain god, and get blessed with rain. The Dwemer realized that having a god whose principle reinforced their effort to escape reality would be a massive boon to their efforts. This is an example of mythopoeic force, because the Dwemer are constructing an item into existence to represent a principle. They would then have worshipped the god, received the blessing of its principle, and been changed probably shortening the gap between themselves and the real reality. If we look at how mythopoeic force works, we see that something does not have to be objectively true to be used as a tool. In fact, the notion of mythopoeic force flies in the face of a notion such as an objective reality, which we will get into further at a later date. For example, one could argue that the events in a fantastic epic poem are fictional. However, one cannot effectively argue that because it is fake, it has no meaning. This is what I propose. By using mythopoeic forces, we can take control of the narrative. That is to say, we can take control of the context into which we were born and in which we presently exist. By doing so and ardently believing in it, we will be affected by the narrative. I know this seems dense and long and probably not very concise. If you need clarification, email me at secretariat.kud at gmail.com and I will try to get back to you. I'm going to wrap this up here, and I will say this. If you still do not understand, go analyze the first five or six sermons of the 36 lessons and see how Vivek is capable of believing in this new context he has birthed himself into and what effects it may have on him. I will occasionally release my own mythopoeic experiments piecemeal. Basically, I will change the narrative of how I came into existence, why, and then insert a principle into my life that I need to work towards. Then I will reread the narrative privately many times and visualize its events. In effect, I will be creating memories and context. Before doing the subconscious doctoring on yourself, I highly recommend that you give it much thought because it would be ill-advised to go around eliminating and replacing memories without forethought. So please take care. Let me know what you think, and I'll see you in the next episode.